This Advent season, join us at Doxa Church to explore the question, why did God come to earth as a child? Why didn't he simply send an angel with instructions or a book for us to read? Why didn't he arrive as a conquering king or an influential celebrity? Why did he, at nearly every turn, do the opposite of what we would expect? Because he has come to save us. For more information, visit doxa-church.com. From John 1, verses 1 through 3, and verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Please be seated. Good morning. Just continue the parade of people coming out to talk to you. Good to see y'all. Uh, well, welcome to Advent uh, 2017. We're very excited about uh, this season. It's Christmas. It's pretty much everybody's favorite holiday, I think, that uh, uh, is a good person. And uh, so uh, everybody's in good moods. Uh, it's it's good time uh, to be here. And I'm excited to kick off this series. Um, in 1964, we're going to go back a little bit. In 1964, uh, Marshall McLuhan uttered the famous phrase, the medium is the message. By that, he meant that the means by which information is communicated is at least as important as the information itself. And in fact, that that means of communication alters the message in significant ways. Uh, years later, a professor by the name of Robert Inchausty uh, commented on McLuhan's insight saying, that's just another way of saying the word became flesh. He says, that's just another way of saying the word became flesh. In other words, that God's word to us, God's message to us, is impacted significantly by the means through which he sent his word. Okay, the, the, the fact that God sent his son to become a human, to come, become a human baby, to be born in a backwoods town to a nobody family, means something. That it, that it actually contributes in a meaningful way to the message of the gospel and in fact shapes how we hear and understand that message in significant ways. So I, I read that quote from Inchausty a couple months ago in a book and it stuck with me and I thought, man, if that is true, first, if McLuhan's uh, insight is true that the medium is the message and McLuhan was uh, writing primarily about media and media's effect on the news and other, other types of communication. And if Inchausty is true that that's just another way of saying the word became flesh or that um, the means by which God communicates himself to God's people through Jesus, namely, actually affects the message and is meaningful um, in, in how we understand the message, then the question is, what does it mean? What does, what does the means by which, what is the fact that God chose um, an embodiment of himself, that, that God himself became man, enfleshed, which is what incarnation means, what does that mean for the message? How does that shape the way we understand the gospel? 
So for the next four weeks, we're going to kind of begin to answer that question and try to get at uh, that answer by looking at John chapter 1. So if you'll turn there in your Bibles to John chapter 1 or on your phone, if you will click to John chapter 1. And the answer that we want to give over the next four weeks is the title of this series. He has come to save us. So um, each week, Jeff and I will break down kind of one part of that phrase. So today we are going to talk about he, right? Shouldn't take long. Next week, Jeff will talk about he has come and then he has come to save. And lastly, he has come to save us. And I hope and pray that we'll begin to see this story in a new way. Because one of the hard parts about preaching Christmas and Easter is most everybody knows uh, the story, right? Like there's no big reveal at the end. It's, it's Jesus, he's a baby, right? And, and he's born, right? We all kind of get that. So I, I want us to see if we can with some fresh eyes... Uh, this story. So John chapter one, what Robert just read for us, I want to reread. He says, in the beginning was the word. And I want to stop there because this is meaningful and, and we, can, we can miss it sometimes. Um, there's some historical background to this passage that's pretty significant. So the word there for word in the Greek, if you notice the word word is capitalized. It's a tip that it means something. Um, but in the Greek, that word is what? Bible people? Logos, right, right? Logos is the Greek word for word. And this is not just the random Greek word for the word word. It's getting confusing. But this was a significant philosophical concept. So specifically, the Stoic Greek philosophers um, understood that there was an animating, a primary animating principle in the universe, Okay? And it was this kind of vague idea, but they called it the Logos. And the Logos for the Stoics was this animating principle in the universe. The thing that kind of held everything together and animated. That it was creative in some sense. Okay? So when John sits down to write his testimony about his relationship with Jesus and, and what Jesus was like, starts by saying, in the beginning was the Logos. So that every one of his Greek readers would go, oh, okay, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about the primary animating principle in the universe. Got it. He says, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. So probably his Greek readers are following along going, okay, yeah, in the beginning was the Logos. So we've got the Logos now set into time. Um, it says the, the Logos was with God. So now the Logos exists in space. And it says the Logos was God. So John is connecting this very common cultural word to God kind of piece by piece going, okay, you understand the Logos, but now I'm going to tell you that the Logos has existed in time and the Logos has existed in space and the Logos has identity, right? That the Logos is not just this vague principle, but the Logos is divine and he's connecting it to God. But now in verse two, which is where kind of the record would scratch, I think, for the Greeks, he says, he was in the beginning with God. Now, nowhere in Greek philosophy would they have believed that the Logos was personified, was a he. And so John here, for the first time, has not just added time and space and identity, but now has added personhood to this idea of the Logos. And then vocation in verse 3, saying, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
he'll go on to say that the Logos who's who, everybody? There should really be no hesitation on that one, okay? That's a pretty, that's a pretty easy one. They don't get easier than that, right? So he is, John's making this claim that the Logos, the primary animating principle in the universe for the Greeks, this, this sense of a, a force that makes and sustains and creates is Jesus, And that it is in fact that Jesus, that primary animating principle in the universe, this from a, from a Christian theology perspective, the second person of the Trinity, meaning God himself has come to be with us. That's really significant that God didn't choose to send simply a a divine document. He didn't choose to send an angelic decree He didn't even choose to send a conquering king or an influential celebrity. I mean, it seems like Jesus really missed out on an opportunity to leverage this moment more effectively because he just sent a baby. Granted, it was the God of the universe, but in the form of a baby. So I I want us to see two things from this passage, and that's the first, that God's plan to communicate himself is to send himself, to send the son, God himself, to be with us. And then to do something. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, this is a confusing sentence, right? So we got to kind of break it down. And other translations, I think, do a better job of of breaking down the sentence. Because essentially what John's trying to say is, no one has ever seen the Father, God the Father, but God the Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the Son came to make known to us the Father, or to to make a divine introduction to us. Now, I I think this is really significant for us, and, and I want us to see why. That God's plan to communicate the gospel was to send himself, God himself, not not some servant, not a lesser envoy, but to send God himself for the king to come and for his purpose to be to connect the subjects with God. To connect us, to make known to us God the Father himself. Now, why would he do this? Jesus, later in his ministry, in Matthew chapter 22, uh, I would argue, maybe the most significant passage in any of the Gospels, and it's very familiar to many of you, a Pharisee, one of the teachers of the law, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, Rabbi, what is the most important commandment? What is the greatest commandment of them all? And for the Jews, this was not an insignificant question. They had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commandments. And the Pharisee is trying to test Jesus by saying, pick one that's the most important, the greatest commandment of all. And Jesus, without hesitation, says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That's Jesus' answer. That there is nothing more important in all the scriptures than that you would love God with all that you are. Now, what does this mean? It means a couple things. One, it means the purpose for which you were created was to know and love God. 
That's your, to use another Greek word, it's your telos. When God formed you and made you and had the very idea of you, that that idea, the reason that he formed you was so that you might have relationship with him. Uh, My wife is pregnant, 39 weeks pregnant, right? She's very pregnant. And, and, uh, and so there is a child inside of her, and we don't know the gender. Um, we are really hoping and praying and claiming a boy. Uh, and so that, that, that boy is, before he ever enters into the world, before he ever demonstrates his, his great skill at baseball and his great knowledge of God, before any of that, God has created him for the purpose of knowing and loving him. That's it. That's number one on the list of my boy's purpose. That's it. Everything else is at best a distraction and at worst a destruction. It's more important than money, than work, than power, than pleasure, than your family, even than holiness or mission. Knowing and loving God is first and most important. It is what you were made for. Which also means that God... The object of that love is the most lovely and lovable being in the universe. How do I know this? Well, the only way that you could ethically command love, right? Like I, I, can, I can woo your love. I can try to make you, I can try to draw your love to me. But the only way I could command you to love and to say that the most important thing for you is to love me is if I were truly the greatest and most lovely thing in the universe. And that's self-evidently false. So I would never command that. But God. God is the most lovely and lovable being in the universe so that he and he alone can command that you would love him with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul, all of who you are should be directed in love for him, that he made you for that purpose and calls you to every day pursue that end only if he and he alone is the most lovely thing in the universe. See, he's the only thing in the universe that as you love more and more and dedicate more and more and more of your life and energy and passion and devotion to him, that it actually makes you flourish more. See, every idol that you could ever give yourself to, every other thing in the universe that you could give yourself to, the more and more and more of yourself you give, the more it takes and the more it asks. But see, God doesn't work that way. The more of yourself that you give God as you add more and more love and devotion and passion and giving over more of yourself to him, the more he gives to you. This is why we can confidently say that the greatest endeavor you could ever partake of in all of human experience is to love God because I know that that's a promise of your flourishing. More than anything else. And we see this. We see that all of God's activity in the world is a demonstration of 
and in service to these two things. Let me say that again. So if it's true that we were made and our our telos, our, our purpose in the world is to know and love God and he is the most lovable and lovely thing in the universe, then it serves that everything God does is to demonstrate those two truths and to further convince us of those two things. Think about it. Scripture is the story of God's unrelenting love for his people. That over and over and over and over, from the very beginning, God has shown grace upon grace, love upon love, in the face of rebellion, in the face of disrespect, in the face of idolatry, God has shown grace upon grace upon grace, love upon love upon love, demonstrating over and over and over that he has not and will not give up on his people. Creation itself is the expression of God's character a demonstration of his value for beauty, joy, and satisfaction. Think about this. I live in Seattle, and so every day on my commute, I drive east across the 520 bridge. And as I come out of Montlake, down onto the bridge, I see the lake on either side of the bridge. I see the mountains in the distance. And for one month of the year, when the sun is visible, I see, because of the time of my commute, I see the sunrise come up. And when I come over that bridge and I see the water and the mountains and the sunrise and all of it, I I well up with affection. I I can recognize that beauty. And it's not something I choose, right? There's not a moment where I go, okay, lake, mountains, sunrise, yeah, okay, heart, like that. (laughs) That's not how that works, I I witness God's creation and something wells up within me that is beyond my, my conscious choice. But what I want us to recognize is that it doesn't have to be that way. God could have created the universe and our relationship to the universe in a purely utilitarian kind of way. We could derive no joy from God's creation. We could simply use it objectively, value it for its productivity. I could come across that same bridge, see the water, the mountains, and the sun, and go, okay, good. We need those things. We need the water so that we can be hydrated. The mountains are an important part of the cycle of life. Sun, good, photosynthesis, right? Like, we could understand the universe purely objectively like that, but that's not how God did it as a testimony to his great love for us, made the universe in such a way that we can witness God's creation and our participation in that wells up in joy and satisfaction. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Except to demonstrate to us his great love for us his affection for us, his desire for us to experience satisfaction, for us to experience the joy that he had in making it. Worship itself is an invitation to be with him. Even in the midst of our sin, he creates a way for sinners to commune with him. And it's not just the churchy Bible stuff. Everything around us is a demonstration of God's love for us. Think about laughter. Laughter suggests that God values enjoyment and that life with him is full of joy. 
I estimate sometimes that 60% of the things that come out of my mouth are intended to make someone laugh. That's godliness. (laughs) Home and our longing to have place is a hint at our lifelong displacement that is ultimately only met in him. Friendship is a foretaste of the kind of kinship we were made for. Mutually encouraging relationship that gives us life and joy and and a sense of being. Vocation or work. The satisfaction that comes from good work reflects the character of God and our partnership with him in the ongoing cultivation of his creation. Intimacy. That mutual knowing that comes only from vulnerability and trust. God gives us a taste of it in romantic and familial relationships that require require real risk but allow for real knowing. And and I think that 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 little taste that we have, you know, dim though it may be, shaded though it may be, these little tastes of enjoyment are, are God's hints to us of what more there is. And what we were made for. And that all of our lives, all of human history, all of discipleship is arcing towards that level of knowing. That we would know more and more. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. He goes, I think we can see dimly. I I, I picture this, Paul's illustration, like when you get out of the shower and the mirror is all fogged up and you can kind of see yourself. And I always think, man, if I just looked at myself in that foggy mirror and then left, I'd feel pretty good about how I looked. Um, But then I wipe it off. I'm like, ah. And, And yet I think what Paul is suggesting is that in eternity it will be the opposite. That now we see dimly and we go, okay, I think that's good. Friendship's good and creation's good and worship, I love it. But we will one day see that wiped away and go, are you kidding? That was supposed to be a hint at that? That was a terrible hint. It's way better. That each of these things are God's way of revealing a little bit to us. Like, I have more for you. And if you come to be with me and and pursue relationship with me like I've pursued relationship with you, that there is more. That what we see dimly, we will now see fully. And what we will know, he says, I love this part. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That in the midst of our blindness and dimness, God still knows us fully. And pursues us in the midst of that. In fact, the whole trajectory of scripture points in this direction. From creation to restoration. In, in the first couple chapters of Genesis, we see God moving in the garden with Adam and Eve. It says that he was with them in the cool of the day, walking in the garden with them. That he breathed life into them in this really intimate picture of how we became animate. It says that he breathed life into us. I, I picture that mouth-to-mouth breathing life. And there is a, an incredible intimacy to that idea because there are very few people in the world that I would want to be that close to and they are my wife and my children and none of you and, and, and yet that's the intimacy with which God chose to animate us. He didn't have to. He could have done that from afar. 
let them have breath. That would have been just as effective, and yet he didn't. He chose to animate us with breath. And we fast forward and see God entering in with Israel over and over and over and being with them and leading them, appearing amongst them. And then Jesus that climactically comes into this world to be with us. And then when he leaves, it says he sends the Holy Spirit to be within us. And then we see at the end, the restoration of all things, Revelation 21.3. John says, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's the end. No separation. That the relationship will be restored completely. And that we'll be with him. He'll be our God, we'll be his people, and there will be nothing to separate us from him. We'll know him fully as we are fully known. Most importantly, I think the cross demonstrates this in a really unique way that honestly I, I, I didn't even understand until recently, like last week. I had this moment with my son and, and my, my, my one son, who's soon to be an older brother of my second son, um, I love my son very much. He is, he is very difficult at times. He's very emotional. And, and uh, I, 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 he's going to watch this someday. And so I'm trying to edit on the fly here. But uh, he is a challenge to me at many times. And, and uh, I had a moment with him last week. I'm sitting on the edge of my bed. And he's standing in front of me being rebellious and, and being satanic, I think is probably the word. And... <laughs> And I, I felt this, this tension inside of me. I felt this tension where I love him so much that I, I want nothing more for, that, for him to be reconciled back to me in this moment. I want our relationship to be whole. And, and one of the ways I could go about making whole that relationship is by simply giving him a hug and going, okay, buddy, just, just try not to do that anymore. And we'll, we'll cuddle and hug and he'll run away. And it will seem like our relationship is restored. But what I feel at tension with that is there's a way that this desire for me to be reconciled to my son with all those, also this desire to be reconciled to him with the kind of relationship that I know I'm supposed to have with him. That doesn't just overlook sin and think a hug can just do away with what happened between us. But knowing that I have to get to the heart of the matter with him. And I have to press into that, that tension of going, buddy, what you did was wrong. It was deeply disrespectful and destructive. And, and I need you to acknowledge that. I need you to deal with that. I need you to say out loud, hey, I did this and it was wrong and I'm sorry. Because if, if all I do is kind of this end of the tension and just give him a hug and send him on his way, we haven't actually restored right relationship. We've fooled about with some sort of gross approximation of it that we, we just go, it's good enough. And what we see on the cross is God going, I have an unrelenting desire to be reconciled to you, but I also have an uncompromising expectation of what kind of relationship I'm going to have. And those two ideas collide on the cross in a way that is absolutely extraordinary. That we see in God a desire to be reconciled with us so he sends his son. I mean, who better? Who better to tell us what it's like to be with God than God himself? Who better 
to demonstrate for us what life connected with him is like. Who better to bear witness to how good that is than God the Son? And yet at the same time, he was unwilling to just come, oh guys, I promise it's better. Just try to be better. Look at how good it is for me. It could be that good for you. Just try to do better. I'm gonna go hang out with God again, but just try to do better. What we see on the cross is the collision of those two ideas, God's unrelenting desire for relationship with us and yet his uncompromising expectation of the kind of relationship, the depth of relationship, the quality of relationship that he desires for us. That anything less than that is, is, is foolishness. It's half-hearted. And it's a, a, a fraction of what he made you for. That is the beauty of what we see on the cross and that is not the work of someone who just simply desires us to know things about God and to do the right things for God. We've talked about this a lot for the last month or so. I just think it is so important that if you're here for the first time and especially if you're not a Christian, I wanna be really clear about something. Christianity is not primarily about knowing the right things and then doing the right things. That's not what Christianity is about. It never has been. That Christianity is about knowing him. Why did Jesus send his son instead of a divine decree? Because he just wants us to know him. Why did he send us a person and not a document? Because he wants us to know him. This is not the action of a God who simply wants us to know some stuff and do some stuff. No, God would go to these links to make himself known to us in this such radical way. So if this is all true, then all of our discipleship should be pointed at knowing God, not just knowing things about him or doing the right things, but pursuing him in relationship with him. Paul speaks to the one when in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. It's not about knowledge, it's about being known and knowing God. Jesus in Matthew 7 speaks to the other saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are good things. Prophesying, driving out demons. Have any of you done that today? I don't think so. Jesus goes, but I didn't know you. You're doing a bunch of stuff. You know some stuff, but I didn't know you. And I made you to know, I made you to know me for us to have relationship. That was the whole point. You missed it. The Father sent Jesus, God Himself, so that we might know God. Not things about God, but God. He has made you for this kind of real, intimate relationship with Him. This is why He created you, it's why He died for you. It's why he provides for and protects you. It's why, even now in this moment, he pursues you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you didn't make us 
just simply to follow some rules. What a shallow expectation that would be. What a low bar we've set for ourselves. God, you created us for the most incredible thing that we might have relationship with the God of the universe. Real, intimate relationship with you, knowing you, walking with you, hearing from you, talking to you. You gave us your word, not so that we could know it all, so that we could know you. You gave us prayer and you taught us to pray, not so that we could pray right, but so that we would talk to you. You gave us ears to hear you. Lord, you gave us hands to work out what we know about you. You gave us each other so that we might help each other know you. God, everything you've made, everything you've created around us and given to us is all focused on that idea. And God, I pray that we would see it. I pray that we would see it. That we would not be satisfied with a lesser vision of what it means to be your child. If all that it means to be your child is to know some stuff and do some stuff, we have sold you short. You, God himself, came to this world to introduce us to himself so that we might know you. May we not take our eyes off of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.